0: (laughs) At Great Bay you can see clear to the ocean. It lies this way, be careful. This week we're traveling to Great Bay to bring peace to troubled waters. But first we're going to upgrade Link's sword and have a close encounter with extraterrestrial life. Part 1, I Want to Believe In an interview published on Glitterberry's Game Translation, Shigeru Miyamoto said, I wanted a game where you could fight the bosses twice. The reuse of bosses has been a feature of every Zelda game to this point. Bosses or mini-bosses fought in one dungeon will appear in another location. However, what Miyamoto is talking about here and the way it was implemented in this game is different from anything we've seen before to this point. Here players can choose to refight dungeon bosses at any time, as many times as they want. All they have to do is return to the dungeon. I personally haven't made much use of this feature, with one exception. I have a fondness for Goat, the boss of Snowhead Temple. And good thing too, Goat's defeat results in the most dramatic change for any of the game's four cardinal areas. We'll need to enact that change in order to upgrade Link's sword. Right in the temple entrance there's a platform that lets us warp straight to the boss. Defeating Goat results in Spring returning to the mountain. This opens the way for Link to acquire the Gilded Sword, a more powerful sword. With Goat defeated we can visit the Mountain Smithy to have Link's sword reforged. The blacksmith shop is operated by a sort of odd couple, Zubora and Gabora. Gabora is a hulking mountain of a man whose speech is entirely unintelligible under a face-covering mask. Zubora is a small man who does all the talking for the pair. Ah. He says that they can reforge Link's sword for 100 rupees. They must however take it and it will not be ready until the following morning. This is a nod to A Link to the Past, where the blacksmiths in that game also took Link's sword to reforge it and asked Link to come back at a later time to retrieve it. I handed over the sword then headed to Goron Village. At the head of the trail leading to the village are some hills which we can only climb by rolling as Goron Link. At the top is the Goron Elder's son who wishes to go to the Goron races, but there's a large boulder blocking the way. At the north end of Goron Village, at the lower level, we can find the entrance to a shop run by a massive Goron. A sheet of ice blocks the shop entrance during the winter, but now that the spring has come, the door is open. The Goron inside sells a special kind of bomb, the Powder Keg. He explains the Powder Kegs are dangerous, so Link will have to be tested before he's allowed to buy them. The Goron provides Link with a free Powder Keg and then asks him to destroy the boulder blocking the Goron racetrack. The Powder Keg reminds me of the giant bomb in A Link to the Past, though the use and the function of the two are quite different. The Keg can only be used by Goron Link. It has a long fuse, but it will eventually explode. It can be blown up earlier with a hit, such as from an arrow. Getting it to the Goron Racetrack involves throwing it up multiple hills and avoiding enemies to get the powder keg to the boulder intact. We then blow the boulder to bits, and we can head on to the Goron Racetrack. We enter the race by talking to the Elder's Son. Five other Gorons are also in the race. We have to roll down a winding track, which features a number of obstacles, and cross the finish line first. We can purposely bump into other Gorons to slow them down. There are also magic jars on the track that we'll have to collect in order to keep our magic meter full through the race. It took me two tries, but I managed to come in first on my second race. The prize is a new bottle filled with gold dust. I advanced to the second day and returned to the blacksmith shop. The smith gave Link the razor sword. This is a more powerful sword, but it's limited in use. It will dull and return to the standard sword after 100 hits. This is obviously not the sword that we want. Zubora explains that they can make a stronger sword, but they will need gold to do it. We give him the gold dust from our bottle. There is more than enough to strengthen the sword. Zubora obviously plans to pocket the excess and says this time they will reforge the sword for free. We give up our sword for another day. Advancing to the next day, we can claim the gilded sword. Zubora says they can't make a stronger sword. It not only hits harder than the standard sword, but it will never dull. After getting the sword, I explored a bit and collected a few heart pieces before I reset the clock and returned to Snowhead. I recalled seeing a mask that I had not collected yet on the western edge of Mountain Village. On the western edge of Mountain Village, a lone Goron stands atop a ledge, shivering. He says he's stuck and notably has a hat or a mask in the shape of a frog on his head. He wants something to eat. I could remember from my previous playthrough the food he wanted was hidden in a chandelier inside the Goron shrine. How was I supposed to know it was there? I didn't find the hint while playing but I later learned that there is a Goron who says you can have food that he hid there. To get the food we must first get the chandelier spinning. I knew to do that I had to light all the torches within the shrine. How to light them exactly, I wasn't sure. There are a pair of golden torches in the room with the elder's son that cannot be lit with fire arrows or a burning Deku stick. I drove my wife a bit nuts with the crying baby sound as I tried to figure it out. Yeah. I only stumbled on the solution when I decided to put a stop to the crying for her benefit. Turns out playing the Goron lullaby and putting the elder son to sleep also lights the golden torches. Why? I don't know. Does there need to be an answer? I use the Deku stick to light all the other torches. Once the last torch is lit, the chandelier starts to spin. Heading to the top of the shrine and standing just outside the Elder's son's room, we can Goron roll at the chandelier and break Goron-shaped lights to reveal a rock sirloin. Taking the sirloin back to the stranded Goron and giving it to him earns us the Don Garrow mask. This is used for a side quest involving a frog choir that I have never done and that I will not be doing during this playthrough. After getting the mask, I reset the clock again and headed for Romani Ranch. Hardcore Majora's Mask fans probably already recognize that I did something wrong. The entrance to the ranch is blocked by a massive boulder. It can be destroyed with a powder keg, which can be purchased in Goron City or on Clock Town. But first, you need to be approved to carry powder kegs before you can buy, and you can only be approved by destroying the boulder blocking the Goron races and then returning to the large Goron that sells the powder kegs. I never returned when I was working on upgrading my sword. So it was back to Snowhead Temple to once again defeat Goat. I like this boss, but honestly having to fight it a third time and twice in one session was a little annoying. It's my fault, obviously, for not returning the first time, so I defeated Goat once again and brought Spring to the mountains, though now as I'm writing the script I'm wondering if I perhaps could have just used fire arrows to melt the ice blocking the powder keg shop and save some time. After getting approved to carry powder kegs, we were given a free one for completing the test. I then went to Romani Ranch and used the powder keg to destroy the boulder. I did visit the ranch earlier in this playthrough, but I did not visit the main farmhouse and the main residence there, the sisters, Kremia, and Romani. As we approach the house, we see Epona inside a fenced-in area against the house. Tattle points her out, and Link runs up to her, excited to be reunited with his horse. Turns out this cutscene was added for the North American release of the game, and I assume the POW release as well. In the September 2000 issue of Nintendo Power, English scriptwriter Jason Lung wrote, the US game benefits from Japanese gamers' feedback, so our version will boast new perks like a cinema scene when you're reunited with your stolen horse, Epona. We also meet Romani, one of two sisters who own the ranch. She looks a lot like Malin in her younger years. Romani, however, has a habit of speaking in third person. She also comes up with a new nickname for Link and dubs him Grasshopper. Romani tells us she was practicing for tonight when they come. They are strange creatures who come to steal the cows. That's right, there are aliens coming to the ranch to abduct the livestock. Why are there aliens in Majora's Mask? Eiji Onuma told GameSpot in 2015 the aliens were added because, Japan was experiencing something of a UFO boom. It even went so far as our TV shows to cover it and explain to people what cattle mutilation was. So even to see the words as scary as cattle mutilation on TV and the idea of UFOs abducting people led to this whole idea of Earth being invaded by aliens becoming rather popular. I thought it was going to be really interesting and scary to use it in the game, so that's how we decided to go with that. Numa told Nintendo Dream the aliens wound up on Rurani Ranch because, when cattle mutilation became a topic at the time, Koizumi wanted to do that content. But that content couldn't be done within Clocktown, therefore we wanted to have a vast place like a ranch. Also, it would have been weird if there wasn't a ranch following Ocarina of Time, so Romani Ranch was born. Romani tasks Link with helping her protect the barn by shooting the slowly approaching aliens with arrows. She tests his skills with a minigame. We ride across the ranch on Epona's back and shoot ghost-shaped balloons with a bow. The idea is to do it in as low as time as possible. I managed to do it in 1 minute 32 seconds. Romani then teaches Link a song to summon Epona. We of course know what it is, Epona's song. I find it interesting we're unable to play this song prior to learning it here, but the developers acknowledge that it is a returning song from Ocarina of Time by writing in the text box, You remembered Epona's song. We must meet Romani in the barn at 2am on the night of the first day. That's when they will appear. We will have to protect the barn until the sun rises. As promised, they appear at two. We see a strange, fast-moving orb of light. Perhaps the alien ship passes over the ranch. As it does, alien creatures appear on the ground and head toward the barn. While the minigame and the setup for the alien defense suggests that the intended way to handle this is on horseback, I stayed on foot and wore the bunny hood. Each alien will fall from a single hit from an arrow. They approached the barn from all sides, so I stayed moving. We can see alien locations on the mini-map, and they also have glowing eyes which help them stand out from the surrounding ranch. As the clock strikes 5 a.m., the sun rises and the aliens disappear in a puff of smoke. The strange light that I assume is their ship can be seen leaving. We have saved the ranch. Romani gives us a bottle of milk as a reward. That's two additional bottles in this section. Nice! After saving the ranch from aliens, I hopped on a Epona and rode over to the Gorman track. That's just east of Romani Ranch. The Gorman brothers are the spitting image of Ingo from Ocarina of Time. They are triplets. The third brother is the troop leader who is currently with his band of performers in Clocktown. The remaining two are here at the horse racing track. They mock Link's horse and challenge him to a race. It's 10 rupees to enter with the promise of something nice as a reward if we win. I went ahead and entered the race. The setup is simple. It's much like the race we did in Ocarina of Time against Ingo to win Pona, Once around the track. If we come in first, we win. The difference is this time we have two opponents. The track is also much larger and much more varied than the one in the previous game. There are obstacles such as trees and patches of mud to avoid. There are also fences that we can and should jump over. The Gorman brothers will always go around a fence, slowing them down. We must also manage opponent's carrots properly to ensure we don't fall behind. It took me three tries to win. In the third race, I managed to pull ahead by jumping the final three fences just before the finish line. After winning, the brothers give Link the Garo mask. We're told it was once worn by the wandering ninja spirits of Ikana. I then returned to Romani Ranch where I met Kremia, Romani's older sister. She looks a lot like Malin as an adult. She plans to take a wagon load of milk to Clockdown at 6 in the evening and offers Link a ride. After passing some time, I was able to take that ride. follows is a nice scene where Kremia talks about the passing of her father and how it appears someone is trying to sabotage her ranch. She wonders about the falling moon and mentions her friend Andrew is supposed to be married on the fourth day. We know that day won't come. At least not for now. As we leave the ranch, we see a new fence has been erected across Milk Road, forcing Kremia to take an alternate path through the Gorman Brothers' racetrack, or ugly country as she refers to it. Kremia urges Link to have his bow ready, and for good reason. The two Gorman brothers attack. They are on horseback, armed with pitchforks, and are wearing Garo masks. They are after the milk. We shoot them repeatedly to keep them away from the cart. There's no timer on screen, but the entire sequence lasted about a minute for me. The brothers became more aggressive about 30 seconds in. I started rapid firing at that point. Finally, we exit the Gorman Brothers property. After reaching Clocktown, Town, Kremia gives us Romani's Mask. It's a cow-shaped mask that, when worn, will grant us recognition as an adult and allow us to enter the milk bar. Time now to reset the clock and head to Great Bay. Part 2. Great Bay Great Bay is located directly west of Clocktown. We need Epona to jump a fence to get to the Great Bay area. Again we hear a new arrangement of Majora's theme. This version uses organ for the main melody, and the counter melody is played on bass. We also hear still drums in the background. The bay is the most open area, at least in appearance, in the game. When we first enter, there's a beach before us, complete with towels and umbrellas on the beach for people visiting. In the water, we can see a tall metal building with a hook on the top. It really catches the eye. Tingle is floating above it. A sign on the shore warns against swimming in murky water. In between the beach and the building, we can see seagulls circling over a body. Swimming out, we can see it's a Zora face down in the water. As Link approaches, the Zora calls for help, asking for someone to get him to shore. When we swim behind the Zora, we get an option to grab him. We can then push him to shore. He slowly and uneasily walks up the beach a short distance before collapsing again. Speaking to the collapsed Zora we learn his name is Macau. He is the guitarist for the Zora band. He asks us to listen to his final message and delivers it through song. Through his song he tells us the singer of his band laid some strange eggs and lost her voice. Those eggs were stolen by a band of Gerudo pirates. Macau went to take on the pirates and was defeated. He says he can't die in peace unless someone rescues the eggs and heals his soul. That's our hint to play the Song of Healing. When we play the song, we see a vision of Macau meeting the singer beneath the spotlight. More lights turn on, revealing the rest of the band, and they go to join them, walking hand in hand. Macau fades away, leaving behind the Zora mask. Macau's spirit briefly reappears and asks Link to carve his farewell on his grave. During a brief moment of silence we see Link has erected a grave marker for Macau which incorporates his guitar. Link bows in respect. Then it's time for us to move on to get those eggs. I went out to the Hooktop building. This is the marine research lab. Inside we learn abnormal weather has increased the temperature of the water in Great Bay. The warmer water is dangerous to Zora eggs, so a large aquarium has been prepared for them to hatch in. We are also given a hint to visit Zora Hall. It's located south of the lab in a fish-shaped building with its tail sticking out of the water. Zora Hall is built around a large stage in the center. A few Zoras say they plan to watch the band rehearse, but the members are still shut away in their rooms. We can find those rooms behind the stage. There are guards posted at the doors of each band member's room. We are told the band leader, Evan, is looking for Macau. Fun note, three band members are in their rooms practicing, and each song that they're playing is a classic Zelda series song. The drummer is playing the cave theme from A Link to the Past, known as Dank Dungeons. Speaking to the drummer, we learn the singer, Lulu, has a secret. She is descended from a line of Zora who guard the Great Bay Temple. Rumor has it the warmer, murky water is related to some sort of trouble at the temple. The bassist is playing the dungeon theme from the original Legend of Zelda. He doesn't say much, but he tells us that Lulu is out behind Zora Hall, staring at the ocean. The band leader, Evan, is playing the original Legend of Zelda's Game Over music. He asks us if we got the eggs back yet. He's keeping the cancellation of their concert at the Festival of Time in Clocktown a secret from the other band members. The Pirate Fortress is located to the north of the Marine Research Lab. Its large doors are closed, meaning we have to find another way in. Just to the west of the main entrance, we can see a row of wood panels with skulls and crossbones painted on them. Behind one of them, the third I broke, there is a secret entrance to the Pirate's Fortress. This is a stealth area similar to the Thieves' Hideout from Ocarina of Time. The fortress, however, is much larger and more complex than the hideout. It's split into three distinct areas. The first is outside the fortress proper. There are Gerudo pirates on boats who patrol this area. As with the hideout, we have to avoid being seen by the guards. In a change from the hideout, getting spotted doesn't land Link in jail. Instead, Link is tossed out of whichever area he's currently in so here in this first area, Link will be tossed outside of the fortress gates. Once inside the fortress proper, however, he's only tossed out to this first area. Players have to stealthily surface on a small patch of land on the north end of the area, and turn into a Goron and ground pound a switch. This opens an underwater passageway to the second area of the mini-dungeon. The second area is the lower levels of the fortress. There is no stealth required here, just a linear set of challenges. We take care of a push block puzzle and a couple of crystal switch puzzles, all while avoiding mines and unfriendly currents. Eventually we make our way back to that first area, but we emerge in a spot that's above the guards, so we're safe from being spotted. From here we go into the fortress proper. While thieves Hideout in Ocarina of Time was full of twisting corridors and required players to use the camera centering features to peer around blind corners, Pirate's Fortress is much more open. We enter a large area with some strategically placed boxes to hide behind. There are doors at higher elevations all around the perimeter of the fortress, and a watchtower right in the center. I generally prefer this more open design. I felt the need to center the camera to look around corners in Ocarina of Time didn't work particularly well. The fortress has some quirks of its own, however, that keep it from being a great stealth experience. Our first goal is to get through a door on the west side of the fortress. It's accessible by stairs, but passing through it will immediately get you caught. It's not clear that we need to do this from the start, but we do first need to get all the pirates out of that target room before we enter it. We do that by climbing the watchtower in the center of the fortress. The first time I climbed the tower, I used my bow to take out a guard on the bridge. But then, I couldn't walk past her. The game wouldn't let me walk over her body. And she awakened as I tried, and I again had to start over. The next time, I waited until she walked past the ladder, and then I moved up and crossed the bridge and went through the door. As we enter, Tal comes face-to-face with a wasp. The game makes it clear the wasp hive is above the pirates in the neighboring room. We see the room through a set of bars and listen in on a conversation. We learn the pirates lost three of the seven eggs. Four are inside the fortress. The other three are located in an area infested with sea snakes. We also learn the pirates stole the eggs because they were told by the Skull Kid they are the key to getting into the temple, and that there is treasure inside. We then clear the room by shooting through the bars and knocking the wasp hive down so that the angry wasps drive the pirates away. Then heading down to the now clear room, we open a treasure chest to get The Hookshot With the Hookshot, we can move through the fortress to find the eggs. The first is held in the same room with the Hookshot. I found my second egg in the south section of the fortress. In the room just prior to the egg room, I fought a Gerudo warrior. These mini-boss fights play out the same way they did in Ocarina of Time. Defeating the warrior opens the path forward, and we claim the next egg in the following room. I had only three bottles when I entered the fortress, and there are four eggs. So I exited and dropped off the two eggs I acquired at the marine research lab before returning to the fortress. The hookshot allows us to skip the second section and quickly enter the fortress proper. The third egg was in a section of the fortress to the north, and the fourth egg is in a section to the northeast. A Gerudo warrior guards each egg. I also took a photo of one of the Gerudo pirates. There is a fisherman in a building near the entrance to Great Bay who wants one. I did not speak to him prior to this point in the playthrough, but I could remember the need for the photo from my first playthrough. After dropping off the eggs at the marine research lab, we need to round up the remaining three. Near the entrance to the Great Bay on the east side of the map, there are two buildings made of white stone with pointed tile roofs. One is the Ocean Spider House. We'll go there next week. The other is the Fisherman's Hut. Inside the hut, the fisherman has a seahorse inside a jar. This seahorse is pretty special. It can talk. It asks us to return it to the water near Pinnacle Rock. The Fisherman gives us the seahorse in exchange for a photo of one of the Gerudo pirates. The Fisherman is just one of a number of kinda pervy guys you run into in Great Bay. There's also a Zora trying to peek through the keyhole of Lulu's room in Zora Hall, and another Zora in Zora's Hall who wants to buy pictures of Lulu, and a Zora near the Pirate Fortress who says he's there to check out the gorgeous pirates. Yikes. Pinnacle Rock is located on the northwestern side of Great Bay. We can clearly see two stone pinnacles sticking out of the water. If we don't take the right path through pinnacle rock, we will be reset to the start. After releasing the seahorse, it will guide us to the right path to the sea snake's lair. It's very much like the Poe guide in the Haunted Wasteland of Ocarina of Time. The sea snake's lair is a deep, circular pit with alcoves where the sea snakes, or giant eels, hide inside. The seahorse tells us its friend is also trapped there. It asks us to clear the area of all sea snakes. Defeating the sea snakes allows us to walk back into their dens. We can find the three remaining eggs on the north and southeastern side. Clearing all of the sea snakes results in a short cutscene where the seahorses are reunited and were awarded a piece of heart. Back at the marine research lab we place the remaining eggs and they hatch and form a staff of music. This is our hint to pull out Macau's guitar, but honestly it's not that simple. The game wants Link to be standing right next to the researcher when he pulls out the guitar. If not, the song teaching cutscene won't start. It took me a frustrating amount of time to figure out where the game wanted me to stand. Once in the right spot, we're taught the new wave bossa nova. We are told to play this song for Lulu. Doing so triggers a cutscene in which a giant turtle, who at first appears to be a small island, awakens. We can ride this turtle to the temple. I held off traveling to the temple, however. Instead I traveled to an area west of Zora Hall and I used the hookshot to climb a waterfall. At the top we meet an unusual looking beaver. It promises to give us a bottle if we can beat it in a racing challenge. This is a checkpoint race. We have to swim through 20 rings within two minutes to win. Winning, however, doesn't get us the bottle. The beaver's brother challenges to a second, more difficult race. Winning the second race will get us the bottle. Time to reset and head to the temple. Part 3. Great Bay Temple The music of Great Bay Temple begins with a steady beat. It features a sort of chirping synth and industrial clangs. A dizzying keyboard arpeggio is also featured heavily. Other parts of the song fade out, but the arpeggio remains before clangs, synth, and the beat build back in. The dungeon itself is unique in its industrial appearance. It may be called a temple, but in appearance it seems more like a plant of some kind. What it does exactly I can't say. I've heard it theorized that it is in fact a water treatment facility, which is why the trouble at the temple is related to the warm, murky water in Great Bay. That would make sense, but it's not like the series has really had such logical explanations in the past. In Ocarina of Time, for example, the frozen Zora's Domain is blamed on trouble at the water temple on the other side of the map. How the evil Morpha causes the cold in Zora's Domain is never explained. It's just magic. I was honestly dreading the return to Great Bay Temple. I remembered it as a confusing web of passageways, but playing through this time, I realized it's really not as complicated as I thought. I kind of expected not to like this dungeon in particular, but I ended up feeling really positive about it overall. I noticed that developers seem to be taking steps to really ensure players understand how things connect. I do wonder if this is because of the fan reaction to the Water Temple in Ocarina of Time. Even in interviews from 1998, AGO Newman noted how he was getting feedback that the water temple was confusing, and in the 3DS remake that game did get color coding added to doors to help players navigate. We can see the same color coding concept in Majora's Mask as well. Snowhead Temple featured color-coded doors, and Great Bay Temple features color-coded pipes. The dungeon spans three floors, and it's divided into two parts. Each part happens within the same spaces, and they're divided not by a physical door, but by water currents within the temple. The front entry room holds only a stray ferry, with the temple proper starting in the second room. This is the first of two waterwheel rooms. Tattle calls attention to the waterwheel as the first of two hints making sure players understand the layout of the temple. The room features red and yellow pipes. The water world is currently turning thanks to a geyser spewing from a yellow pipe. There is no water flowing through the red pipes. We can also access valves connected to the yellow pipes. One is above water and one is below. If we close the one above water, the water wheel stops turning, and two elevators in the room lose power. This teaches players that the water wheel is a power source and it will be necessary for it to be turning in order to advance through the temple. Opening the valve below the water creates a second geyser of water, this one we use as a platform to move deeper into the temple. When we come to the central room of the dungeon, Tattle points out the water wheel is turning a giant agitator, I guess you'd call it. I don't know the proper name for it but it stirs the water within the central room and creates currents that impact the way that we can travel. The room spans all three floors. There is one room above water, but it's blocked by a waterfall. In the water, we can see red pipes and green pipes snaking into different rooms. But thanks to the current, we can only follow the path of the red pipes. There is an upper room and a lower room, with red pipes leading inside. By chance, I took the upper room, which is in fact the only path to take. We're dropped off in a room with a treasure chest and doors on platforms that are out of reach. We move deeper down the path, encountering new enemies, like the Dexie Hand, which grabs Link and throws him, and an underwater version of the Deku Baba, called a Bio Deku Baba, which sprouts legs if Link cuts its stem. A room further back features two pools of water, one with a strong current and one that is standing still. Through grating on the right, we can see the Boss key chest. Straight ahead, a pathway is blocked by ice. To the left is an alcove with a chest. Inside is the compass. A small key is inside another chest at the bottom of the pool. We then take the current out to the central room and go to the lower red pipe area. A locked door in the lower red pipe room leads to the first of two mini-boss fights. This boss is called Wart. To start the fight, we have to go into first-person view and look up making eye contact. Much like Goma in Ocarina of Time, except Wart is all eye. It's a 3D reimagining of the Argus boss fight from the Swamp Palace in A Link to the Past. As with that game, Wart is surrounded by smaller enemies, in this case, balls of slime. We will pull them from Wart's body and destroy them to expose the eye. Once we have cleared a large enough gap, we can shoot the eye with arrows. After a few hits, Wart falls to the floor and begins to slide wildly around the room. It took me two more hits to defeat Wart, revealing a treasure chest. Inside is ice arrows. These were strictly optional in Ocarina of Time and had fairly limited use. Here the Ice Arrows have additional abilities. Honestly, I feel like it's the earliest version of the Cryonis rune of Breath of the Wild, or maybe the Ice Arrows from Tears of the Kingdom. We can shoot the arrows into pools of water to form platforms to walk on. We can also freeze enemies, turning them into blocks of ice that we can stand on. We need to do this on an rock in the room just before the mini-boss arena where we fought Wart. Using the platform created by the frozen enemy allows us to reach a valve for the red pipes. Opening it gets the water flowing. We can then return to the upper red pipe room and use our new ice powers to reach a previously unreachable treasure chest. It has the map. We can pass through that unreachable door to get the second red valve. A choo-choo must be frozen to get on top of the valve to open it. We can also now get the boss key. By creating ice platforms we can reach the passage blocked by ice. Using fire arrows we melt the ice. This actually foreshadows a puzzle we'll encounter later in the dungeon, where we have to both freeze and unfreeze water. The frozen passage leads to a second mini boss fight. It's a rematch against Gecko, one of the mini bosses we faced in the Woodfall Temple. I say rematch, but it's actually a much different fight. It does still feature the same fanged frog that we fought from that temple, but instead of riding around on a turtle, it encases itself in a giant blob of slime. Gecko leaps up to the ceiling and then drops down. The slime expands outward towards Link if he gets caught in it. Gecko will land a number of hits. It actually took me much longer to refigure out this fight. I kept the fire arrows equipped because I had just melted ice and I didn't think to switch back to the ice arrows. I tried to use the fire arrows and the hookshot before it registered to me that I needed to switch back. With ice arrows, we freeze the slime, causing Gecko to fall and making him vulnerable to a hit. Defeating Gecko allows us to get into the next room and claim the boss key. We can then use the hookshot and the current in the room to return to the central room. And from there, we head back to the first water wheel room. The water's now flowing through the red pipes in the room. We can use the hookshot and a new geyser to reach a third red valve and open it. Then we close the above water valve on the yellow pipes to make the water wheel spin in the opposite direction. This reverses the current in the central room, opening up the second part of the dungeon. Returning to the central room, we're supposed to first go to a room blocked by a waterfall, but I dived into the water and went to the upper green pipe room. This leads to a second water wheel. This one is set in motion by a waterfall coming from the ceiling. We need to freeze it and stop the water wheel, and then walk across it to reach a door. In the next room, we find three seesaws. We can freeze and melt water to raise and lower them to reach a green valve and open it. Because I came here in the wrong order, no water started to flow. That tipped me off to the fact that I was missing something. So I doubled back to the room that was blocked by the waterfall. Here we need to freeze the waterfall to reach the entrance. In the room we need to form ice platforms to cross the room and reach a green valve. We can then open it and get the water flowing. It's then down to the bottom green room, which allows us to open the final green valve and create a water geyser, which allows us to reach the boss door. Before heading in, however, How about a few stray thoughts about stray fairies? After the Snowhead Temple, I found it much easier to track down fairies in this dungeon. I did end up swimming into the upper green pipe room multiple times by mistake, but that was actually a good thing. It was only on my return trip that I realized that I missed a couple of treasure chests in the waterwheel room. They're well hidden. One is above the base of the waterwheel. We can stand on one of the waterwheel paddles to get the height we need to hookshot to the chest. The other is hidden in an alcove which can only be seen from a moving platform next to the waterwheel. The stray ferry in the room behind the waterfall with the first green valve isn't hard to locate, but it was a struggle for me to reach it. We need to form ice platforms in the water to allow us to hookshot to an upper level of the room. It took me a long time to get the platform in the right spot to pull this off. The other ferries weren't tricky at all for me. A change from Snowhead where I did have to consult a walkthrough to find one ferry. Okay, now time for the boss. The boss here is Georg, the masked fish. The mask isn't apparent, but its massive fangs are. I can't say I was a big fan of this fight. There's a platform in the center of the arena. It's surrounded on all sides by water. Georg will charge the platform and ram into it in an attempt to knock Link in the water. It will also occasionally jump over the platform. If you are not careful, you will take a hit as it passes over. The idea is to stun Georg with a standard arrow, then transform into Zora Link, jump into the water, and land a single blow before quickly getting out of the water again. After three hits, Georg will release a number of smaller fish enemies into the water to add some extra challenge, although I rarely ran into these smaller enemies. The hardest part for me was just getting out of the water. I know some people are a big fan of how quickly Link swims in Zora form. I can't say that I've mastered it, however. I would often bump into the platform while trying to get out, or would fail on an attempt to jump out, only to be eaten by Georg. It took me three times to defeat the boss. I died twice. I did not have any potions or fairies so I actually left the dungeon and bought two red potions and rounded up two fairies before returning to try again. Ultimately, I used two potions and one fairy before I was victorious. I also felt like I was starting to get better, just ever so slightly as swimming. Eventually, I was able to deal the final blow and defeat the boss. After getting Georg's remains, Link is again transported to that plane where the Giants reside. We see a third Giant in the fog. This one tells Link to help their friend. Tattle interprets this to mean the fourth Giant. After returning to Great Bay, I paid a quick visit to the Great Fairy. She is found near a chain of small islands just south and west of Zora Hall. We need the hookshot and the bombs to get in. The Great Fairy gives Link a defense upgrade. Nice! This particular upgrade was only given out at the end of Ocarina of Time, but we'll be able to get more use out of it this time. Next week we're headed to Akana Canyon and the Stone Tower Temple. We'll take on a few side quests and round up a few masks along the way. If you want to follow along, please subscribe. If you've already subscribed, thank you, you're awesome. Please also consider sharing with a friend. I am Paul Riley. I'll see you next week.